welcome to Living Fabulously with Bev. The mission for the show is to get to the heart of well-being through inspirational stories of everyday people, expert insights from a number of health and lifestyle-related disciplines, and exploration of topics that underpin well-being. If you want to take control of your well-being and put yourself front and center in your life, then this is the podcast for you. I want you to feel calm, nurtured and inspired so you can enjoy your life and your success. If you have not yet done so, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you know someone else that would get value from the show as well, please share it with them. Join me on this journey and let's live the fab life together. Today I'm delighted to introduce my guest Debbie Carberry, who will share her inspiring story of how she's managed and cared for her son through well-being challenges, what has led to a new way of being, and how she learned so many lessons from her son. Welcome, Debbie. Hi, Bev. Debbie, tell me about yourself and what it is that you do. Okay, so I'm 50, and I'm, um, gosh, I'm a lot of things. So I my work, I am a clinical social worker. I've got a private practice in Brisbane and a wellness centre in Brisbane that I own. In addition to that, I, I do mediation um, and I'm a relationship coach. And, and then my other jobs are I'm a mum to four kids, age 21 to 14, and I'm partnered with probably the most delicious man in the world. I've been with him for 14 years. He's absolutely gorgeous. So, yeah, I have um, a number of different roles. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. So how would you describe your journey? Tumultuous, <laughs> very tumultuous. Um, yeah, there's been, it, it's been peaks and troughs. It's a bit like one of those rides at the fun fair, you know. There's been some really amazing highs and some um, very, very, very low lows. Can you explain a bit more about what you're dealing with? You know, you've mentioned your son has a life-threatening illness. So I, um, back when I was... 35 so I have four kids I have um 21 year old uh 18 my 15 and a half year old is my child that's got a cardiac condition and then a 14 year old daughter and when I fell pregnant with him you know I'd had other kids so I went off to have an ultrasound and um anticipated just you know you'll find out which sex it is and that'll be dandy at 18 weeks and at 18 weeks the sonogram just took forever and I was kind of thinking come on we need to get moving then they brought in a more a specialized person and they took me into a room afterwards and just said look you you need to terminate um this child only has three chambers in his heart he's not going to survive um you're wasting your time basically they were a bit more brutal than that but basically said you know just terminate uh, which was it was like a punch to the chest really i wasn't prepared for it at all and just sent me reeling i went into shock and grief for months really but I have a philosophy that, you know, life gives you what you need. So I decided that I would continue with the pregnancy because that was right for me. And we would see what happened, basically. And, yeah, so then, you know, my son was born and we had an extraordinary challenging journey as he went through three open heart surgeries and you know his heart can't be fixed so he is missing chambers his heart's back to front he has the plumbing is all over the place so you know he wasn't really meant to survive but he had a different plan to the rest of us so he decided he would survive and he continues to survive at 15 and three quarters that's amazing you know if you think of the technology that was available 15 years ago it's not what it is today and like you say it's functionally and physically a difficult uh, situation so that's just wonderful to hear well actually Bev you know 15 and a half years ago they said he'll survive till he's eight 
and he's 15 and a half now and we're part of a stem cell research program um, with the University of Melbourne and they've said he should live till he's 30 now and of course by the time he's 30 they will tell us that they found some more great things that they can do for him so you know the, the science is moving at a rapid pace there's still stuff that can happen you know he can have a stroke he can have a heart attack those are things that are that can just happen but generally speaking you know there's a lot of hope now a lot and so in this journey what skills have you developed or lessons have you learned along the way oh my god so many so many before I had him I was a bit of a hothead very much the sort of person who believed she could control pretty much anything felt like you know I would attack my life you know with fervor would just be like just pumping through things and he kind of brought me to my knees he I watched him almost, I don't know how many times, you know, and you sit there and it's really life and death. It's it's not kind of he's sick with tonsillitis, not, you know, I know for parents who've got kids with tonsillitis, it's scary. But to sit beside your child going, is this the day? Is this the time? It was just massive. And, and the roller coaster ride of that where I would just get so incredibly fearful. So I lived in fear probably for about six years, seven years, maybe even eight years um, of is today the day? You know, is it going to be today? Is it going to be today? And and our cardiologist, who is so beautiful, he's been with us on this entire trip. I just love him. At one point, sat me down and said, okay, you need to stop it. You made a decision to let him live. You chose that. You need to let him live. Like, quit it and just let him live. So that was a big wake-up call of I need to let him do what everybody else does. I need to stop fretting and worrying about what's next and what ifs and actually go you know it was a decision it was a real decision to go I want him to live and I want him to decide so making sure that I presented him with opportunities like all of my other children that we treated him the same as the other kids which we actually do so yeah he taught me about letting go and about the fact that we have no control at all like none and that that's a complete illusion because we don't have control, in my opinion. We, we, we're offered up scenarios in life, and I think you get to choose what you do with it. And the good, the bad, and the ugly comes along, and you get to decide how you deal with it, because everybody has stuff, everybody. And, you know, people have often said to me, oh, why, why haven't you asked, you know, why you? Why has this happened to you? And, and my answer is, why not me? <laughs> like, you know, people get cancer, people get get very unwell and ill people have all sorts of disease why not me you know why not me and so for me it was never I never had that question in my head it was more about okay what are we going to do about it you know when you're in that pit of fear obviously your mindset and your attitude are key so how have you managed your attitude and mindset (laughs) the universe provided me with a very optimistic outlook. I I am just generally within myself, very, very optimistic. I I truly believe now, not so much in the midst of all of this, but definitely now that, that I get what I need, I always get what I need. That there's never ever a time when I haven't gotten what I needed. I have, I'm a tenacious, like I'm a bull terrier. <laughs> you know, I, I can stick my teeth in and hang on. And I think that was really needed. When he was very sick, it was about getting through the day and going, you know, I had other children that needed me. It wasn't an option to fall in a heap on the floor. That just wasn't an option. There were other children. I was a single parent when he was 
very tiny. And when before my second daughter was born, you know, my relationship had really ended. Uh, so my final child was born, my, my daughter. So I was on my own after he was one and I had a new baby. So there were four of us and it just, it wasn't an option. I couldn't be self-indulgent. I had to go, okay, what needs to happen today, which probably is a blessing now, you know, because it just meant I kept on going. And I think that that really helped me to get through that really difficult first four years with him. So I'm hearing that your mindset was around the positive aspects of what you were dealing with. Yeah, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was positive at the time, but I just knew I had to keep going. So for me, the mindset was just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. And it'll be all right. You're going to get past this time if you just keep going. And so moving forward now, what have you realized about your own priorities at this time in your life? So today, um, <laughs> my kids are older. So my kids are now, you know, almost 21 through to 14. And, and I, I've just woken up probably in the last two years and looked around me and gosh, gone, gosh, my house is quiet. Where's all the noise gone? Where have the young people gone? Because they're all busy. You know, my biggest is at uni and he's left home and, and my 18-year-old's, you know, got his own life. And so it's quiet. And so I, a couple of years ago, I kind of sat down and went, wow, you know, it's probably my time now. You know, I've, I've done this big chunk of work. What do I want? You know, what do I need? And I've slid into that beautifully. I think, you know, I'm, I'm the queen of self-care and I, I am selfish, if you like. <laughs> and I looked at it and said, you know, I've done a lot for a lot of people and I've sacrificed a lot over the years and now it's my turn and I'm loving it. I am absolutely loving it. And the next chapter is so exciting. So for me, yeah, this time in my life is about saying, you know, it's, it's actually my time now. I've done a lot for everybody else and now I have a right to step up and, and move into what I want and need. That is so unusual because I found a lot of women tend to think that like you use the word selfish I think that from a point of view of being able to invest in yourself is the biggest gift you can give to everyone around you and I agree with you on both points I think most women would use the word selfish which is why I use the language of the people that I work with so I think most women do think that is extremely selfish but I agree with you you know if we do not take care of ourselves if we're not happy then what are we giving to the people around us? And for me, you know, I see relationships like a pyramid. And when I talk to my clients, I talk about you are at the top of that pyramid. You're the number one. And then your relationship with your partner, if you have a partner, and then your children, and then everything else. But you're number one. But lots of women struggle with that. I think it has a lot to do with the hardwiring of the brain. I think it has a lot to do with cultural influences around our systemic influences. So the influence of our culture, of our community, of our family, of our mother, you know, who modeled to us how you do being a woman. The story we tell women, I think, is really sad right now, which is you can have everything. I think that's cruel. I think it's really cruel because, you know what, with that comes a massive burden massive burden because you can't have everything it's too much and that's why women now in my opinion so pushed thin on the ground you know and and I think being unwell serves a purpose for some people it's about that's the only time they get to stop is when they're unwell so you know for me I think there is such a cultural push to do all be all and yeah if our history also praised us and 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 told us that the values and the, uh, the qualities that were important were nurturing and loving and self-sacrifice and giving and 
then guess what? You're in for a pile of trouble when you have kids and you're expect- and then your parents get old and you pull in every direction you can possibly imagine. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. So if you could talk to your 20-year-old self, what would you share with her to put her on the path to lifelong well-being? You know, when I was 20, I, I don't know that I would. She was a bit reckless. <laughs> she was... I love, looking back at my 20-year-old self, I just grin from ear to ear because she was so fearless and so courageous and probably extraordinarily naive. But my 20-year-old self was was beginning this journey for me. She was so just fearless. You know, she she cashed it. So at 20, I I had an apartment in London. I just landed on my feet after I was 18 and I bought an apartment in London. I sold it and the profit I made from it, I cashed up. And back then, that's like 30 years ago now, you know, I got my traveler's checks in all my currencies (laughs) and no mobile phones, no internet, no nothing. And I, I started on a trip around the world. I went, I just... I need to get away from England. I need to be in a different place. This is not the right place for me. And I don't know where it is, but this isn't it. And, you know, that 20-year-old woman with a backpack on her back with far too many pairs of shoes in it. I had to get rid of a lot of shoes. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, you you may need clothing. You probably need food, but you probably don't need 12 pairs of shoes. (laughs) Um, So I had to dump the shoes. But, you know, she was so courageous. And, yeah, she didn't look after herself very well. You know, she didn't. But I forgive her that because she just was so courageous and took me on the, a five-year journey around the world by myself where I could have gotten into so much trouble and I didn't. And then I landed in Australia and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is the right soil for me. So I don't know that I'd actually give her a lot of advice. I'd probably just say, thank you very much, you courageous fool. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Let's change tack a little and let's talk about plasticity of the brain and why you feel it's so important. Okay, so so I am a clinical social worker, a mediator, and I'm a relationship coach. And all of my work is around this thing called attachment, which is a theoretical framework. And, and basically attachment is is about the way we connect to other people, the way we bond and the way we survive, really. And it's all based on our brain and our brain in a very, very, very small window of time. Um, At least that's when the hard wiring happens. So, you know, between zero and three, with the person who takes care of us, so that might be our mom, it could be our nan, depending on what our situation is in life, the person who looks after us the most, we learn in that time, which is a nonverbal time, And we don't have concrete memories of it. So this isn't stuff we just access. It's just in the hard wiring. And what happens is our brain learns very specific ways of connection, ways to get your needs met, ways of connecting, ways of being in our our bids for connection and repair and communication. And they all happen in this tiny little window. And what happens then, and this is only new to neuroscience, is 20 years ago now, and not, that's not a long time scientifically, but 20 years ago, we knew this impacted on moms and kids. The science happened in the 60s, and, and we went, you know what? There's, some, there's a dance that goes on with a, a carer and a child, this, this really interesting dance that goes on where we learn how to get our needs met. And we knew that for mums and babies. But what's happened in the last 20 years, which is so exciting, is we now know that this is kind of a blueprint for how we do all of our relationships into adulthood. And the neuroscience now is telling us that parts of our brain will actually light up. And there's a recent um, 
a research study in the US. So what they did was give an MRI to a woman. So they gave her a shock on her foot and she, her, she reacted. It was painful. They then did it again to her after she'd had a conversation with her husband. So they had given them what, what's called a hold me tight conversation, which is about a conversation that activates the brain and releases oxytocin and helps us feel really, really connected. And then they gave her the shock again and she didn't feel the pain. So what we know is that the brain has this amazing capacity in the connection to actually soothe and heal people. And we don't even have to be with people. You know, you think about a memory of a loved one and it can flood you with oxytocin. And all you have to do is think about it. So oxytocin is the love chemical. It's the really feel good, delicious chemical in our brain. So I am hugely passionate about um, neurobi the neurobiology of connection. Um, I think it is the way of the future. You know, when I specialize in relationships, all relationships, you know, whether that's with your partner, your children, your, your colleagues, your friends, your family of origin, your siblings, all connection. And we have had a way of dealing with this, which has been quite pragmatic historically, where we talk about learning a skill set of communication. And what we actually need to teach is how do we connect how do we soften it and keep it a safe space so that people can connect with each other? And, you know, the neuroscience behind this is like if you imagine a garden and you know everybody's experienced this where you have a pathway in the garden that people just walk in this one direction. So in the garden, there's, there's an area where the grass doesn't grow. And that area is that repeated pathway that we do over and over again. That is neuroscience, right? It's what, what, what fires wires. So what we do repeatedly becomes an automated pattern of behavior. So what we need to do when we struggle in this is actually not go down that well-worn path, but we'll want to. Our brains will want to take us there because that's the well-worn path. But if we choose to move away from that, if we choose to make deliberately make a different choice, so when we come to walking down the path, we say, hang on a second, that path actually leads me down a track I don't want to go down today. I'm going to go on a different path. I might not even know what's going to happen on this path because I've never walked it before, but I'm choosing something different. So for me, neuroscience and the capacity we have as human beings to change the legacy we have in connection and bonding is massive. It's just massive. When we were talking earlier, we were just talking about the sort of habitual nature of the brain. So when we talk about things like sleep as well, mm -hmm. have you got any ideas around retraining your brain around sleep? Well, again, I think, you know, what's the payoff for not sleeping? That's the first question I would ask is what's the payoff? You know, and the next question is what goes on with your brain? You know, if your brain is just noisy, what are you doing to help download that data? So do you write? You know, I recommend to women, I say free write. Get a pad and a piece of paper. If you can't sleep, and just free write. Don't edit it. Don't try and make the grammar correct. Scribble as fast as you can every thought that comes to your head. And then once you've done that, hopefully you've made some space. Another thing I suggest to women is to do the yoga breathing, 478 breathing, which we know really assists in a sleep. Um, it calms our central nervous system down and helps to slow us down. So 478, and there's a lot of data around that. The other thing is don't, don't fight with it. 
you know don't wrestle with your brain accept it you know if we can accept without judgment that when i'm lying in my bed and i have a thousand things running along and our, our conversation goes like this i need to go to sleep i wish i was asleep why can't i go to sleep i've only had four hours sleep that's not going to be helpful to get you to sleep so being able to just be with your sleeplessness and go okay right now I'm, I'm in struggle with sleep. So what can I do right now? And mindfulness is amazing. You know, we can, we can allow the thoughts to just come and go without judgment and just go, you know, I'm noticing like, like a leaf floating down a pond, you know, the, the, the thought might be, I'm really tired. And we just observe it as that comes. We don't get hooked into it. We don't go, I'm really tired and I wish I could fall asleep. And this is really awful and I hate it. We just go, you know what? I'm really tired right now. And there's no judgment until the next thought comes. I wonder what time it is. And if we can just not get into a tug of war with our brain, we'll buy ourselves some calmness. <laughs> and, and we need that right to sleep because when we're in struggle, it is so hard to sleep. I agree, and I recommend that if you have been laying there for 20 minutes, you need to get up and actually disrupt. Yes. So go and do yep. something calming. It might be, you know, reading your favorite novel with a dim light, or it might even be, you know, the mindful coloring in, something to just disrupt the whole thought and mind process. Absolutely, and that mindfulness coloring in is such a great idea, Bev, because it activates a different part of the brain. You know, and, and we can get into, it's almost, because it's mindful, it's calming, it's trance-like, it can make us feel more playful and less in struggle. So the mindfulness colouring is a brilliant idea. So what are your tips for living fabulously, Debbie? Oh, my gosh. I think, you know, if there's one thing my son has taught me, it's don't don't be complacent. Don't, you know. You get one stab at this if you're lucky, unless you're a Buddhist and then you might get many. But generally speaking, this is it, you know, this is it. So don't be complacent. Grab onto every opportunity that comes your way. You know, what's the worst case scenario? You know, death is the end, right? That's inevitable for all of us. But everything between alive and dead, I think you can have a stab at. Good. You can find Debbie Carberry at her website is Debbie, D-E-B-B-I-C-A-R-B-E-R-R-Y.com.au. And she's also on Facebook. Debbie, thank you so much for being with me today. My big takeaway is that this brain has amazing connection to heal and soothe you, even just with positive memories. I love that. But my call to action is let's all become these queens of self-care, just like you, (laughs) by creating new paths in our brain around things like sleep, like self-care, all the things that actually fill us up so that we can be our own gift in the world. Absolutely. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Bev. Did you know that quality sleep is one of the most important factors that affect your metabolism and also impact your levels of satiety or satisfaction when you eat? Join me for Better Sleep, Better Waistline to make simple changes that you can implement right away. It's a free webinar on Tuesday, the 24th of January, 2017, at 11 a.m. AEDT. Sign up today by heading to bit.ly forward slash better sleep, better waistline. Thank you so much for listening, and I would love to know what you enjoyed most about this episode. You can connect with me on Facebook by searching for Living Fabulously with Bev 
or feel welcome to leave a message or comment on my website. You can get the links and any references from this episode in the show notes at my website, www.livingfabulously.com forward slash podcasts. Do you have a friend who you think deserves to live fabulously? Spread the love around by sharing the podcast with them right now. Until next time, be sure to live the fab life. The information shared here and in our programs and webinars should not be seen as medical advice and is not meant to take the place of seeing licensed health professionals.